Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. We have for a long time used media to document our lives and to share it with others. And and that when we put social media into a historical context, we can see that really the most important difference between historical notions of the qualified self and contemporary ones has to do with the commodification of our traces mm-hmm. and who is able to do that. And it's um, the platforms themselves. It's Facebook, it's Google, it's Twitter. Um, and that that is a fundamental difference. And what becomes really interesting is when you compare social media to something like Kodak, right, which was the largest uh, technology media company, I would say of the 20th century, they're the Google of the 20th century, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they had access, particularly the early 20th century, they had access to everyone's content because at the time you had to, you had a Kodak brownie camera or whatever kind of camera you had, and you had Kodak film and you would send it back to Kodak to get developed and printed. Um, so Kodak had access to all of our content in the same way that social media platforms do today. But the biggest difference is that Kodak made their money from selling technology and from selling their services, their development and printing services, not from selling our information to better advertise to us. And this is where we see social media platforms really taking a cue from 20th century broadcast media. And that fundamentally is the biggest difference And I think it raises really important, certainly privacy, as well as agency, questions of agency. But I think it's only when you make those historical comparisons, can you really see what's new about new media? That is Lee Humphreys, who's with us this episode, talking about her new book, The Qualified Self, from MIT Press. This is New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. So one of the first things we always like to do is ask the author who they are. So who is Lee Humphreys? Lee Humphreys, it's so funny to say, uh, is, um, so I'm an associate professor in the Department of Communication at Cornell University, and I study the social uses and perceived effects of communication technologies. The majority of my research has looked at mobile and social media. So what does that mean, the uh, social uses of communications technology? Yeah, so I end up doing, the majority of my research uh, tends to be more qualitative in nature. So I do a lot of observational work of people using communication technologies. And I do a lot of interviews with people about how they think about the technologies how they use the technologies, and how they think the technologies are impacting them, their identities, and their relationships. And so how did you come about uh, the book, The Qualified Self? How did I come about the book? So part of it was I was studying mobile um, social media 
around 2006 or so. And I was studying this uh, at the time. It was a, a WAP that it was before smartphones, right? So they didn't have apps. So it was a WAP. Um, it was called Dodgeball. And uh, it allowed, it was like a check-in service and it let people share their locations. And then there was this technology called Twitter that came about, uh, which was supposedly a direct competitor. And I had no idea why anyone would want to send brief messages like that. So, of course, as a proper social scientist, what do you do? You study that, which you don't understand. And so... Uh, I started researching Twitter and um, at the time it was considered a micro blog. And if you look into the blogging literature, there's a lot of comparison with diaries. Um, So at this point it was talking about like live journal and other kinds of platforms like that. Um, And, and one of the things I started to find fascinating when I went back into the literature on diaries uh, particularly feminist uh, histories of diaries is that diaries were not what they are, what I thought they were at least, which were, you know, little uh, notebooks with locks on it into which you pour your innermost secrets and desires. Um, but instead diaries used to be shared hmm. and they also used to be not so much about confessions or, you know, who it is that you have a crush on, but it was much more a matter of fact. So this happened, this happened, you know, we planted corn, we went to church, so-and-so visited. Um, And so one of the things that became really fascinating to me is, again, how they were shared, but also how the content looked very different uh, to what I thought of as journals but in fact was very similar to what I was seeing on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So diaries were the captain's log of long ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in particular, it was the, the, um, the writings of women who did not just write about themselves, but they wrote about their families. They wrote about the, their community. They wrote about the world around them. Um, it was a very different sense of what it meant to chronicle um, or to document, right? Uh, that it was much more social in nature. Uh, and I think that's a really important element of how we understand both social media today, but also the the concept of what I'm calling the qualified self, which is the sense of self that comes from um, engaging in media to document our lives and to share it with others. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you bring up how uh, you looked at the feminist literature on on diaries and uh, diarying or journaling, because it seems like when people say that social media, oh, it's just your, your diary, you know, um, it seems like they're feminizing social media and it's in a negative way. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> and yet... And yet, I think, you know, there's such important 
uh, work that goes on in that kind of journaling and chronicling of everyday life, which um, women have historically done uh, as family historians, as keepers of kin relations, that this is really important work um, that women have tended to do. And I think we, we see it on, uh, on social media as well. Now, are, are different social medias provide different functions as far as the qualified self? Yeah, it's interesting. So I've done work on, um, you know, a number of location-based mobile technologies um, and social media platforms, as well as on things like, again, Twitter, um, but also on Pinterest. Mm-hmm. And so Pinterest is, you know, it it tends to be a a platform which has uh, more female users. Um, And so it's it's seen as a more feminine platform, I think, in many ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is really interesting, this distinction between... Um, well, on Pinterest, they call them pins, but little pictures um, versus tweets where you are composing, very often you're composing the the language itself. Um, And so one of the things I do in the book is to think about the difference between uh, other people's media that you might curate to create your own versus uh, photographs, um, uh, snapshot photography, for example, uh, versus... um, tweets or posts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think one of the things that we see is through all of them, you're able uh, to do the kind of identity work um, that is often present in uh, these kinds of media practices, even if you're not creating the media per se, but moreover, you're curating it. So you're making choices about what to share and what to collect. You mentioned this phrase, identity work. What does that mean? So I think the way I use it in the book is really drawing on um, Irving Goffman's work, which is to say we play many different uh, social roles. And this is, of course, Robert Merton's work as well. Um, We play many different social roles in society. So, for example, I am a mother. I am a daughter. I am a teacher, um, a professor. a a friend, um, and how I interact with different kinds of audiences um, will look different depending on who I'm with. And so the different kinds um, of relations that I have, the different social roles that I have to play um, become part of the work I do in representing myself through these media traces. So as a mom, I need to, you know, post photos of my kid's birthday. As a professor, I need to post a picture of myself when I got my book in the mail for the first time. You know, there are various kinds of uh, roles that we take on which shape the kinds of representations about ourselves that that we create. Now, the thing is, right now at least, and and for, I guess, the past couple of years, people have negatively associated how we represent ourselves in social media, particularly when we post photos, right? So one of the 
uh, favorite refrains dealing with uh, visual social media like Instagram is that people are narcissistic, right? And you talk about this in your book, but but the idea that when people post and they post things dealing with their vacation, with their eating, uh, where they are at that time is very attention seeking and narcissistic. But you kind of push back on that. I do. I suggest that sharing these kind of mundane, ordinary uh, experiences or events are actually a sign in a way that we reinforce our social relations. So um, when my mom calls me and I ask her what she made for dinner, or she tells me what she made for dinner, um, and she made a pot roast, and I know... Um, A, I know my mom's pot roast is pretty darn good, but I also know that to, for me to have that knowledge about what she had for dinner, she doesn't share that with everybody, but it's based, it, that kind of intimacy that comes from knowing the minute details of mm-hmm. someone's life, it reinforces our relationship. And so when she posts the birthday cake that she made for her friend and I like it and I say, that's beautiful. Yes. I'm commenting on the content itself, but moreover, when I respond, I am pretty much saying, Hey mom, I'm listening and I care about you. And I think that that's a really important aspect to how and why people share these kinds of things. Um, and also the, the, a kind of accountability that we have as part of our social relations to receive and to acknowledge that we are receiving these messages. How do we account for, say, celebrity culture on social media? And, and does that fit in with curation and the qualified self at all? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So absolutely, I think it does. I mean, I think that the if you look at social media and the most popular, obviously the most popular um, accounts on whether it be Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat, Twitter, tend to be celebrities. And one of the things that's really interesting about social media is that it ostensibly allows us to see the backstage of people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so what I point to in the book is how for a really long time we have been publishing and reading diaries. And there's a big difference between diaries and memoirs. Mm. And the biggest difference is that they are written, quote, in the moment. There's a kind of, well, today we would call it a real-time nature Mm -hmm. (laughs) or characteristic to these writings. And I think that's what we see on social media today, right, is that there's a presumed real-timeness to that. And with that comes a sense of authenticity. But of course, we know that it's still strategic. We know that even in our everyday lives, like when I try to take a picture of my family, I had like today, it was the last day of school for my daughter. So I took a picture of her with my son, who's three. I had to take like eight pictures (sighs) because I couldn't get the two of them both smiling and looking at me at the same time. And of course, I only posted one. To social media. So I think this notion that celebrities are so different <laughs> than us 
um, is it's a, I would say it's probably a matter of degrees. But the other big difference, of course, has to do with the commodification, right? So I, as an as a user. Uh, don't, I'm not able to financially benefit from the postings that I make, whereas celebrities certainly are. And I think that does fundamentally change the nature of media accounting and the qualified self. Um, but the practice itself is actually probably a different on a matter of degrees rather than full categorical differences. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the introduction of ways that users, like regular users like you and I, can monetize our diaries, for example, on ins- whether it's on Instagram or, or, or YouTube, um, which probably is the most well-known as far as making people ins- uh, YouTube stars, for example, and people making a living off of those, does that fundamentally change the nature of these diaries? Yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't think so. I think there's the promise of that, mm-hmm. but, um, I, you know, there, I have our colleague, uh, Brooke Duffy, who has this concept of aspirational labor, mm. which is, you know, all of the kind of work that goes into these passion projects that are completely uncompensated. And if you look at fundamentally who are the actors who are compensated? They are still, in fact, the social media platforms themselves, and they benefit significantly more, and they take on significantly less risk than those who are actually producing the content. And so I I don't think that it actually changes it that much because of those few instances. I think those are certainly the exceptions rather than the rules, and that the the more common event activity or usage actually um, does include certainly some creative work, but also the, the, the practice of documenting what you're doing, sharing it with others so that you can begin to see things and understand things about yourself, your family, and the world around you. Mm-hmm. Obviously, social media is evolving. Right. So they, yeah. we're, we're far away from Friendster. We're far from, we're not, I guess, that far from Usenet, but we're, we're, we're far away from Friendster. Uh, MySpace is no more. Uh, Facebook, they say, is dying. There's questions about whether that's actually true or not. Um, but each social media brings about a kind of change. We had Vine, which you had six, seven seconds to uh, do something, right? So how do you think the the evolution of social media or how social media changes and the introduction of new ways to present yourself um, perhaps are mediating or changing how we uh, qualify ourselves? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that, uh, so I I was first a a mobile communication scholar Mm -hmm. And then with the advent of the smartphone, I ended up becoming a mobile and social media scholar Mm -hmm. because the primary way that people access social media is now on their mobile phones. And there's something very particular about that, which actually, I think, very much shapes the development of the platforms themselves, right? So it's only with 
uh, increased access on the mobile phone that we can have Instagram and can have Snapchat because the means of production, uh, distribution, and consumption of visual material is finally all on the same device. Mm. And I think that's a really important technological aspect of understanding the development of social media platforms today. As for the future, I'm not sure what it's going to be. I mean, I think it's going to be mobile. I think the phone is it's just su- it is and has become such a fundamental communication tool. People wake up with it. They go to bed with it. They keep it in their hand all day long. I mean, I it, it's surprising to me. I mean, I think the biggest constraint right now technologically has to do with bandwidth for video. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest technological constraint, which will be solved, right? So we might see more video, but video is also, we have really high expectations of video because of years and years of television and film, which is so beautifully edited. And the editing is still kind of rough on mobile. And so that's why you get these short videos, <laughs> because that's about all the good content you can really get without editing. So I don't know what the future will bring, but I bet it's going to be mobile. <laughs> you know, one of the things that we've been talking about, uh, social media, mobile media use and the qualified self, but I was wondering, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what you thought about how the qualified self is represented or emerges differently among different kind of demographics, right? So we spoke a little bit about women earlier, but then there's different kinds of women, right? Or different women who live in different places. So United States and even different regions of the United States, for example. But how do you think that the qualified self or, or what are your opinions, I guess, of the qualified self for different demographics? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question with regard to, I mean, the majority of my work, I will say, has been limited to relatively, I mean, even historically, I'll say, the the historical diaries that um, got saved, that got archived, Mm -hmm. tended to be white middle class women. Right. And so I think much of actually what the book is based on is white middle class women. So I think there are distinctions between class. I think there are distinctions, obviously, between races, ethnicities, and I think there are distinctions between age demographics. And I think we need and, you know, let alone regions of the world, etc. So I think much of what's in the book reflects this white middle class um, understanding, which is incredibly normative, right, about how uh, identities get represented, should be represented, etc. And so I would argue that we need, I need uh, more research on other kinds of populations and demographics to get a better sense of how representations, self-representations, and I mean, this is the other aspect of the qualified self, right, is that it is relational. So it's not always how uh, 
what we typically think of as mass media, television representations impact our own self-representations, but of course they do, but also um, how we represent our our friends, our family, our communities Mm -hmm. are all part of the qualified self and they are read by others. And so I think, you know, again, I think we need more research. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we always like to do on New Books and Technology is allow the author to give us a one minute or actually 30 seconds uh, elevator pitch. So if someone just turned tuned in right now, and they want to know like why they should read, they should check out or buy your book. What is important about the qualified self? So I think the most important thing about the qualified self is that it shows how sharing the mundane details of life didn't start with Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, but it started with pocket diaries and photo albums and baby books. And it really helps us to identify what really is new about the social media revolution and what isn't so new about it. So what's next? Oh, goodness. (laughs) Um, So uh, I have a, a couple of different projects. One of the things that came up for me in this um, uh, working on this book was how we create traces of um, our lives through media. Um, and the one that I talk about in the book had to do with um, memorial photos of family members who, who died. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the next project might be about um, death and media and how media and let us hold on to loved ones, but also uh, enable us to let them go at the same time. So this notion of media and holding on and letting go, I think is I think is the next project. And that again was Lee Humphreys talking about her new book, The Qualified Self. This has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week. 